grab a Bible and go with me to John 15, verse 18. And if you're wondering, yes, we are skipping verses 12 to 17 this week. We'll come back to them next week, Lord willing. But I've intentionally jumped ahead because today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, like Gary mentioned, where we join thousands of other churches to pray and remember our brothers and sisters experiencing persecution, especially in places where persecution moves beyond mere verbal ridicule and to things like torture and death. And verses 18 to 25 address the persecution of Christians head on. In many ways, these verses give us a brief theology of why Christians suffer persecution. Uh, They give us God's perspective on the subject of persecution, and it's a bit unsettling, really. Jesus' words aren't all that easy to swallow. Because Jesus sees persecution as a normal, even expected, part of the Christian life in this world. Uh, For Jesus, persecution isn't something that we can tuck away nicely in a category reserved only for those Christians uh, living under oppressive governments and cold-hearted leaders. It is true that some Christians will suffer more persecution than others. Even Jesus speaks to that when uh, he's talking to Peter in John, in John 21. But persecution is something every Christian should expect to encounter in the path of obedience to Christ. Jesus' words force us not just to remember the persecuted church, which we want to do, like Hebrews 13 tells us, Jesus' words, though, also force us to identify with the persecuted church. To live in our relative freedom just as they live in their persecution. To be emboldened in our own witness where we are by their sufferings. To pursue love even when it costs us everything, like houses and lands, mothers, brothers, sisters, and even life itself. Because, listen to this, persecution is what happens when authentic Christianity meets a world in love with itself instead of in love with Jesus. Persecution is what happens when authentic Christianity meets a world in love with itself Instead of Jesus, that's where Jesus' words are going to challenge us. So verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, 
they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but they have no excuse for their sin now. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do ask that you would help us from this passage to evaluate our own living to evaluate our own friendship with the world and what it looks like, and that you would use it, use this text to to sever any loves that we have for comfort and security and safety that we are placing above our love for Christ. Lord, help us see that He is the true treasure. He is the only one who is lovely. And when we have Him, we have, every, we have everything. And there's nothing in this world or what it off, offers us or what it threatens to take away from us that's better than Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about abiding in Christ. The disciples abiding in Christ is, is kind of like a, a branch that's abiding in a vine and, and depending on a vine for its nutrients and its ability to bear fruit. And as we abide in Jesus, like a branch abides in a vine... God is pleased to make us look like Jesus and to make us bear fruit like Jesus in the world. Well, today we're going to see the world doesn't like it when that happens. In fact, the world hates it when this happens. And the world will do what it can to keep it from happening. This comes out in several lessons that Jesus gives the disciples We have to remember that Jesus isn't going to be physically present with his disciples much longer. He's about to go, uh, he's about to, to die and then rise from the dead and then ascend into glory with his Father. Well, for the past three years that he's been with the disciples, Jesus has been the focus of the persecution. Everybody's beef in town is with Jesus. So what do you think is going to happen when Jesus returns to the Father in glory, sends the Holy Spirit to empower the disciples to look and live just like Jesus? The world is going to target the disciples. Jesus is leaving the disciples in the world to carry on his mission and the world will hate them for it. And the disciples need to know that and we need to know that. Their mission is our mission. So Jesus prepares them. He prepares us with a few lessons for the mission related to the world's hatred, persecution, and unbelief. And the first lesson that he gives us is this. The world hates Jesus and those belonging to him. 
verses 18 and 19 say, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we've got to remember first what Jesus means by the world. And when you read John's Gospel, the world refers to the entire moral order standing in opposition against God. That's what the world is in John's Gospel. It's referred to as darkness. Chapter 1, verse 5. It's it's so bent in on itself that it doesn't even recognize its maker, God's Son, when He shows up in the flesh. It's chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The world uh, loves its evil deeds. It even prefers to hide them, keep them hidden from Jesus' light. Chapter 3. It's a world enslaved to sin and ruled by the devil himself with no escape for, with no hope for escape. That's chapter 8. And all the rebels that are living in this world, which is everybody, they all stand beneath God's wrath as they make their feeble attempts to thwart God's plan. In a lot of ways, John's depiction of the world here is much like the depiction we get in the Old Testament of the world, especially maybe like a place like Psalm 2, where Psalm 2 has this cry going up, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us cast away their cords from us. Let us break their bonds. We don't want nothing to do with with God. Well, ever since Adam fell into sin, the world stands in opposition to its creator. That's that's what the world is here. It's the world in rebellion against God and His Christ. And that's everybody's beginning in this room. We were all born into this world as rebels against Christ. Our conduct was conditioned by belonging to the moral order in opposition to God. That's what it means to be of the world. You can be in the world, but not of the world. To be of the world means your conduct was conditioned by belonging to the world. We had linked arms with the devil's cause to ignore God's words and establish our own kingdom, promote the world's agenda over Christ's agenda. When Jesus says the world hated him before it hated us, he's saying that all of us once belonged to it. There was a time when the world loved us as its own. That didn't mean everybody got along with us. We can all bear witness to that, I imagine. But it does mean that when it came to Jesus, we, along with the rest of the world, were united in our hatred of Him. 
And that was proven by our desires and our conduct. Jesus has always been a popular guy until he starts telling people what to do. Then the world hates them. And that's where we were. Now, what do you think happens when the sovereign Lord reaches down in grace, looks upon this broken, fallen, sinful, rebellious, created order? What do you think happens when, owing nothing to anybody in this created order, He looks down in grace and starts plucking men and women from that rebellious world order and putting them in the kingdom of His beloved Son? So that now the people in that kingdom belong to Jesus. So that they become God's possession. So that they are ruled by grace and not by sin. So that they are no longer held captive to do the devil's bidding, but they are held captive by sovereign joy. So that their conduct is transformed to look just like Jesus' conduct. So that their newfound love for holiness starts exposing and confronting the world's evil deeds. What do you think happens when that transfer happens? The world views us as nothing but a bunch of traitors. We now belong to enemy ranks. And the demonic powers and rival empire against God's Messiah hate this about us. They hate this about us because the world only loves its own and it can only love its own. The world only loves the people that affirm its agenda, that affirm its idolatry, that affirm its sexual immorality, that affirm the way it champions self-autonomy, that affirm its tolerance of evil. The world doesn't like it when you say an organization like Death with Dignity is demonic for the way it views and devalues the image of God and man. The world doesn't like it when we say marriage was instituted by God between a man and a woman only to reflect Christ's love for His church and anything else is an assault against Christ's empire. And now we who once affirmed the world's evil have been brought into another kingdom standing against its evil, exposing its evil. And by the way, that's the only kind of people in Christ's kingdom, former rebels. Former rebels who affirmed the world's evil. That's the only kind of people who are in Christ's kingdom. And now we, former rebels, stand with Christ. If we are persecuted in the path of obedience to Jesus, then we must gain strength from this reality. Persecution in the path of obedience means we're real. He's transferred us to His kingdom. It means that when we experience suffering for the sake of Christ, the suffering isn't about me. It's about Jesus and me belonging to Him. Persecution means I no longer belong to the world. I belong to Jesus and everything lovely that He is. 
These threats, this imprisonment and this pain and this torture and this violence against my family, it doesn't mean something's wrong with me. It doesn't mean God hasn't loved me. If anything, it reminds me of how God has loved me. He has loved me in Christ who suffered for me. He chose me in Christ and He rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Despite all my rebellion, He still made me His own. My enemies mean for this persecution to assault my soul, but with Paul I can wear these persecutions as a badge of belonging to Jesus. So when your friends start cutting you off their Facebook accounts because of what you explicitly stand for in Christ, it's time to rejoice in your belonging to, belongingness to Jesus. When your coworkers start mocking you for doing honest work in Jesus' name and laughingly apologizing for you, for, uh, when they use crude language around you, you can rejoice in your election. God choosing you out of the corruption of the world when you didn't deserve it, and placing you into the kingdom of His Son. When you, through tears, tell your neighbor why their homosexual relationship is an offense to God and an assault against Christ and His kingdom, and they snub you and write you off as a bigoted freak out of touch with the changing of times, you can stand firm in your belongingness to Christ. When the communist official or the Muslim father threatens to take your life and the lives of your children, it will make complete sense to you because now you understand it in light of the world's hatred of the one you belong to, Jesus. In other words, all that the world threatens to take from you cannot compete with all that you have gained by belonging to Christ. That certainly doesn't make the persecution less painful, But it does provide strength to endure the persecution for Christ's sake. How else do you leave rejoicing after you've been beaten and told never to speak in the name of Jesus again? Like the apostles do when they leave the council in Acts 5.41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. You leave rejoicing when embedded deep within you is an assurance of belongingness to Jesus that trumps anything that this world threatens to take away from you. There's also a challenge in these words as well. But I want to bring that up after looking at Jesus' second lesson for his disciples. Namely, the world persecutes us for our gospel presence. The world persecutes us for our gospel presence. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So again, we see a connection between uh, what Jesus suffers and what those who belong to him suffer. In verse, verses 18 and 19, it was hatred. Now we see it's persecution. He suffered persecution, therefore his servants will suffer persecution. But notice the positive addition here. The, the end of verse 20 says, If they kept my word, and some of them did, 11 of them are standing before Jesus, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. This recalls a much bigger theme running, running throughout John's gospel. 
And the theme goes something like this. Jesus is sent by the Father into the rebellious world and He delivers a message from the Father that divides people into two camps. Those who reject Him and those who receive Him. Those who refuse to believe in Him and those who believe in Him. Those who keep loving the darkness and those who run to the light. Those who prefer the devil's lies and those who come to Jesus' truth. So Jesus enters the world the rebellious world, and people divide around him and his message. He's now saying the same will be true of his disciples. Just like his father sent him with a message into the world, Jesus will send his disciples with a message into the world, and the world will divide around them. Many will persecute them for what they say. Some will believe. The world will divide around Jesus' disciples. Now hear this. The world shouldn't divide around us because of our pompous attitudes. The world shouldn't divide around us because of our belligerent tones. The world shouldn't divide around us for our arrogant spirits or our angry blogs and emails. Such things don't belong to those who were undeservingly chosen out of the world by grace. But the world will divide around us because of the message we carry and the Christ-like lifestyle we choose. The Apostle Paul gives a great illustration of this when, when he describes his own mission in the world He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. He's comparing his ministry to to some of the Old Testament sacrifices. That that his ministry is is like a sacrifice and and the fragrance of his ministry, what he carries to the world is going up as a a fragrant offering. Right? It's, It's going up from his testimony. And then he says this, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, there's one camp, and among those who are perishing. To one, the perishing, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. So the idea is that when we carry the aroma of Christ, the gospel, into the world, it has two effects. Some reject it unto death, while others embrace it unto life. Is Christ the aroma of your life? Such that when when you're around others, they can't help but deal with Him. Meet Him. Wrestle over what He teaches. And here's the challenge. Here's where the challenge comes in that I mentioned earlier, especially for those of us living in the comforts and freedoms of America. We have the tendency, everybody worldwide has this tendency, but oftentimes when we live in our own little context, our context is then imposed on the scriptures and then we limit what the Bible can actually mean by the context we're living in. So we see... Persecution, we have these nice little categories. They're persecuted over there. We're not persecuted here. So it can't mean me. Right? We do these things. 
So we've got to be careful and we've got to ask this question. If persecution is what happens when authentic Christianity meets a world in love with itself, why aren't some of us experiencing persecution at all? That's a real question that we've got to take home from this passage. I want to be careful here. I've already said that not all Christians will experience the same degree of persecution. The question is not, why am I not experiencing the same amount or the same kinds of persecution? Others may be. I'm also not asking the question so that you leave and actively pursue persecution. We don't pursue persecution. We pursue love. We pursue obedience. We pursue allegiance to Christ. And if persecution comes, so be it. But we don't pursue persecution. I'm also not asking the question so that you leave feeling guilty for not yet experiencing persecution. Some of you are being very faithful to the Lord. You are walking in obedience. You are taking steps to follow Jesus daily. And your time of suffering just hasn't come yet. What I am asking is for us to consider whether the lack of persecution in our lives is because we look too much like the world. In other words, when we enter people's lives, there's really no reason for them to divide around us. We're not really carrying the aroma of Christ, the gospel presence into their lives. The offense of the cross is largely missing from our speech and our conduct. Our love for people in this world, it tolerates evil. When Romans 12 tells us clearly, love abhors evil and holds fast to what is good. It calls people out of their evil and into the kingdom of Christ. There's really no, world for the, no reason for the world to persecute us if we look and act and speak and spend our money just like them. Like I said, Jesus' words force us to do more than just remember the persecuted. They force us to identify with the persecuted and to obey Jesus like the persecuted. In his book, uh, The Insanity of God, uh, Nick Ripkin, which is not his real name, he's writing under a pseudonym to protect the persecuted Christians that he's writing about. Uh, but in his, he, he, he was doing some ministry in uh, Somaliland and comes back to the States, but then him and his wife travel around the world and interview persecuted Christians, puts it in a book that it might embolden our witness. So, but in this book, after going through numerous testimonies from believe, believers across the globe experiencing persecution, he ends up concluding, one of his conclusions is this. Satan's greatest desire is for the people of this planet to simply leave Jesus alone. Satan desires that we turn away from Jesus or that we never find him in the first place. If Satan cannot be successful at that, he desires to keep keep believers quiet, to diminish or silence our witness and to stop us from bringing others to Christ. It, It is that simple. Once we understand the nature of this spiritual battle and strategy of the enemy, we clearly 
we see clearly the role believers have been called to play. We also see the importance of our choices regarding witness and faithfulness and obedience. At the beginning of every day, we choose. It is simply a matter of identification. Will we identify with believers in persecution or will we identify with their persecutors? We make that choice as we decide whether we will share Jesus with others or keep Jesus to ourselves. We identify ourselves as believers by taking a stand with and following the example of those in persecution. Or we identify with their persecutors by not giving witness of Jesus to our family, our friends, and our enemies. Those who number themselves among the followers of Jesus but do not witness for him are actually siding with the Taliban, the brutal regime that rules North Korea, the secret police in communist China, and the Somalilands and Saudi Arabias of the world. Believers who do not share their faith aid and abet Satan's ultimate goal of denying others access to Jesus. Our silence makes us accomplices. Perhaps the question should not be, why are others persecuted? Perhaps the better question is, why are we not? That's a soul-searching conclusion. And it lines up with Jesus' words here. If the evil, rebellious world loves you as its own, it's not going to persecute you. But if you walk with Jesus and speak of his cross, the world will persecute you. So are you having the same effect on the world that Jesus did in his earthly ministry? Is the world calling you a glutton and a drunkard as you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Is the world ridiculing you for investing in the poor of society and befriending your enemies at all costs to yourself? Does the world feel conviction over its sin when they're around you? Or do they feel all the more justified in committing it? Does the world find you strange and alien-like when they look at your values and consider your way of life? Are we choosing to live in all the radical ways to which love calls us to live? What would your neighbors say is your highest love, your most valuable possession, and would it be Jesus? Or would it be your family, your homeschool, your house, your truck, your job, the latest video game, And greatest college football win. Jesus said, The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Is there enough antithesis to the world in your own Christian witness? In your business practices? In your political decisions? In your ethical decisions? Does the way you love people look different from the way the world loves people? 
Or have you isolated yourself from the world out of fear of being persecuted, fear of losing your security, fear of being forced into those uncomfortable conversations you just don't want to have with other people? Belonging to Jesus means we also share in persecution. And to think we shouldn't suffer for our belonging to Him is to put ourselves above Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master, he says. It is to put our agenda of a comfortable church above his agenda of a suffering church. It is to put our desires for self-gratification above his desires for self-sacrifice. Mere church-going and outward professions of faith cost nothing. Real Christianity carries a cross Dying to selfish desires, dying to worldly comforts, dying to the fear of man, dying to unbiblical notions of tolerance, dying to worldly comforts to see more of Jesus made known. And that will mean we suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Because the world hates Jesus. And the world divides around our gospel presence just like it does around Jesus. Lesson number three from Jesus. The world does not know the true God. This really gets down to the root of it all. The hatred of Christ, the persecution of Christians, is ultimately rooted in the world's ignorance of the true God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Read with me verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. They do not know him who sent me. He's saying they don't know God, in other words. That's the fundamental issue here. People don't know God. Even though Jews and Muslims and Hindus and others say they know God, even though they kill Christians in the name of their God, they don't really know God, according to Jesus. And the ignorance of God in the world runs so deep, this is so condemning here, of the world's unbelief, and it highlights the sort of unbelief we all were enslaved to before God chose us out of the world. The ignorance of God runs so deep that they don't even recognize God when He shows up in the person of His Son. That's what verses 22 to 24 are saying. God came down in the person of Jesus and He spoke words and He performed works to reveal Himself as God and all the world did is crucify Him. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, that's His words there, They would not have been guilty of sin, or literally, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, so there's the works, that word and works here, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. The point is this, to reject God's revelation in Jesus Christ is to reject God Himself. Because Jesus is the perfect revelation of His Father. He is Himself God in the flesh. 
To reject God's revelation in Jesus Christ is to reject God Himself and remain guilty of unbelief. This is how warped and depraved the, and blind the world is. God tells the world that He's going to show up. He then shows up. He tells the world that He shows up. He does works to prove that He shows up and the world crucifies Him. It's very offensive to people to say that they have no access to God except through the revelation provided in Jesus Christ. That does not win friends and influence people. It makes them mad. It makes them mad because you're calling into question everything that they worship. When you call their God or their gods false, you've just declared war on their worship and a war that may cost you your life. It's certainly not a war that we fight like the world fights. As we're watching being fought on the news with hatred and lies and violence, that's not our kind of fight. We fight with love, truth, and self-sacrifice, just like our Master did. But as we're going about this, we also don't grow impatient with the world in the process. So as they're persecuting us, we don't, go in, we don't grow impatient with the world. First of all, because we all once were there with them, just as ignorant. But second of all, we understand from the Bible now what it means to be ignorant of God. And knowing that the world's ignorance of God is this severe that when He shows up, they kill Him should also give us great patience with the world. If they de- demonstrate barbaric attitudes towards us, it's because they have no knowledge of God's love in Christ. If they seek to kill us for our testimony, it's because they, they have not yet experienced the forgiveness of their sins. If they arrogantly mock us and ridicule us before others, it's because they don't yet know the humility of our God. And so as we go to the world, as we, as we fight with love, truth, and self-sacrifice, we also accompany this with great patience. We show the world the same patience God showed us when we were still ignorant of Him. We show the world the same patience Jesus showed His enemies on the cross when they were ignorant of Him, and yet He prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And the hope is that through our patient preaching and our patient suffering and our patient dying, people have their eyes open to Jesus and come out of their ignorance. Maybe one example that I read in uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, it's back there on the, um, in the book nook. John Piper recounts this testimony that J. Oswald Sanders gives of a man who is going from village to village in India. He's, got, he's barefooted. He's going from village to village, proclaiming the name of Christ. And he finally comes to a city, and they run him out of town because uh, they don't want to hear his message. And he goes to the edge of town. He lays down under a tree and falls asleep because of exhaustion and 
discouragement. And he awakes from his nap. It's got to be scary. With all the village standing around him. And he asks what's going on. And they said they came. And while he was taking a nap, they looked up and down his body. And when they saw his blistered feet, they knew he must be a man that they should listen to. Village to village, rejection after rejection, patiently enduring everything for the sake of Christ. And it was his blistered feet that opened the door for all of them to hear the gospel. And they get saved. That's the way it works. They were ignorant. He was patient in his preaching, suffering, and dying to self. And their eyes get opened to the truth of the cross. One more lesson from Jesus. The world's hatred is not outside of God's control. The world's hatred is not outside of God's control. We see this most clearly in the cross of Christ, which verse 25 points us to. But, Jesus says, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's a quotation from Psalm 69, verse 4, which also happens to be a psalm of David that's regularly throughout the New Testament applied to Jesus. And basically, Jesus is saying that David's own sufferings as Israel's king anticipate his sufferings as Israel's king. So David's talking about his own sufferings in Psalm 69 and in God's Amazing providence and orchestration of history. They anticipate and look forward to, they depict what's going to happen to Jesus on the cross. It's just that Jesus' sufferings are always superior to David's sufferings. If it could be said of David, a faithful but still sinful king that he was hated for no just reason, then how much more could it be said of Jesus, the faithful and sinless king, that he was hated for no just reason? That's the idea here. So they anticipate, David's sufferings anticipate Jesus' sufferings And when Jesus suffers, we see it blows David's sufferings out of the water. Because he legitimately has no, there's no just reason why he should experience um, hatred from men. More than that, David's sufferings that he's talking about in Psalm 69 are only the sufferings that he encounters from enemies, human enemies. When Jesus suffers on the cross, he's not just facing human enemies. He's suffering under the brunt of the entirety of the weight of God's wrath on the cross in place of sinners. So this is the connection that that he's drawing here. Jesus was hated and he went to the cross not because of sins he committed 
He went to the cross because of sins we committed, and he suffered unjustly at the hands of hateful men so that we could be forgiven and delivered from the enslaving powers of sin, death, and the devil. A deliverance that David could never provide because David himself was a sinner. What we see through this connection between Psalm 69 and Jesus' own unjust persecution is that none of it was outside of God's control. He orchestrated everything so that sinners like us would obtain life through His sacrificial death. It was God's plan. The same can be said of our persecution. Especially when we are identified with Jesus. None of it is outside of God's control but he orchestrates it for the purpose of bringing others life. Not in the sense that our dying brings people life, but in the sense that our dying points them to Jesus' dying, which brings people's life. The sufferings are all orchestrated. They are part of God's divine plan to win the world through a suffering and persecuted church not through a posh and prosperous church. We see this throughout, I mean, Jesus' testimony, you will be hated by all men. They're going to bring you before governors. What's the purpose of it? That you might bear witness to them. The martyrs in Revelation 6 cry out under the altar, how long before you avenge our blood and bring justice and God says each were given a a white robe they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow brothers who were to be killed like them would be complete the persecution is part of God's plan God's design Even Paul pulls from the Psalms in Romans 8 to speak of our own persecution. For your sake, he says, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what the path of obedience inevitably means in a world that hates Jesus. We Christians are considered to be sheep to be slaughtered. That's what we signed up for when we gave our lives to Christ. But if this is the way the Bible teaches us to understand the hatred of Jesus and his followers, then we should never conclude that the persecution of Christians means that evil is winning. Evil is not winning in Syria. Do you believe that? Evil is not winning when persecution happens. Jesus' own sufferings and His cross stand as a testimony that such a conclusion is wrong. In the same way God was sovereign over every evil climaxing in the death of Jesus on our behalf, He is sovereign over every evil that will come to us from a hateful world. And if we identify with Christ's sufferings, that also means we will share in Christ's victory. Jesus didn't come, suffer, and die to stay dead. He came to suffer, die, and rise again from the dead, victorious over evil. The reason we can die in the path of obedience 
is that Jesus' death not only took away death's sting so that we no longer have to fear it, He also overcame death's power so that we can hope in resurrection glory when we take up our cross too. That's why I love the way that Paul in Romans 8 not only quotes from the psalm to say, look, your sufferings like sheep being slaughtered were anticipated in the, in the Old Testament. He doesn't bring it up just to say that, but also because this is a psalm of lament. In, uh, in Psalm 44 is a psalm of lament where God will bring justice and victory for His people. And so he concludes, it's in all these sufferings that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the victory we get. That's the glory we share in if we share in Jesus' sufferings. And that means we should pray that our persecuted brothers and sisters will continue hoping in God's sovereign plan. In the same way that God remained faithful to His Son through all His sufferings, He will remain faithful to those united to His Son through all their sufferings. Our prayer can go up to God on behalf of Christians in persecution just as it went up from the early church in Acts chapter 4 and just as it goes up from the martyrs beneath the heavenly throne in Revelation 6. We pray that our sovereign Lord will grant them strength to continue speaking the word with all boldness and that they might trust Him to bring about justice in the end.